Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, wherever you're tuning in from. If you're looking on YouTube, you can see that big subscribe button on the screen reminding you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click that red button down below and the bell for continued notifications. Gosh, it's been a little while, hasn't it? Uh, a little over two weeks or something like that, or maybe right at two weeks. It's been so long that I'm already on my second take because I, I forgot how the order goes on Streamlabs Desktop 1.9. I clicked record, clicked the intro to roll the intro, and then I clicked record again, which stopped the recording, so I had to start all over again. Anyway, hopefully everyone is doing well. Uh, very glad to be back on here. It has just been very busy lately. All good things, all good things, of course. Um, but I thought I would pop on here. I, I, I was conflicted. Should I, should I write an article? By the way, if you hear any fireworks going on uh, outside, that's because it's the day before the 4th of July. And uh, we're not celebrating this evening because it's the Lord's Day. Um, but we will, uh, we will partake of some, of some fireworks, of some, uh, of some legal explosives tomorrow. So um, if you hear any noise, that's, that's where, where that's coming from. Um, but I was conflicted. Do I, do I write an article about this? Um, or should I just maybe do a podcast about it? Maybe I'll do both. All right. But initially here, I'm going to do a podcast about this. And this podcast has to do with the consistency of interpret, interpreting ontological claims in Holy Scripture, because believe it or not, there are ontological claims. What makes a claim ontological? Well, the grammar on the face of it can make a claim ontological. If you use uh, a verb of being or a substantive verb, for example, e meet that makes the claim or that makes the statement in which that is used metaphysical by definition, metaphysics being the study of being qua being. Um, now, you can argue about what kind of metaphysics it's presenting to us, but it's a metaphysical claim or statement on the face of it, just in virtue of using something like a substantive verb or verb of being, for example, like e me. In our case here, there's been some conflict as to how best to interpret John 10.30. And it appears as if John 10.30 is going to emerge as a significant text having to do with the consubstantiality of Father and Son, the fact that Father and Son are identical to the divine essence. They don't have a part of the divine essence. They just are the divine essence. Um... And there are those who would would say otherwise, those, those who would say, well, if you identify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the divine essence, then you end up inevitably collapsing the persons into one another, and you identify the persons with one another. And they're missing kind of the, um, uh, what's called the, the uh, in, in earlier um, literature, the modal distinction, or they're missing the distinctions between subsistence or manner of subsistence in the one divine essence. All right, so, uh, you know, nobody's, nobody's wanting to claim here that all the persons are really just one person acting to be three different personalities or personas throughout redemptive history, which is the essential claim of modalism. Nobody's arguing that here. Um, but what we are saying is that when Jesus makes a claim like, I and the Father are one, in texts like John 10.30, that that is a substantive claim, and Jesus is grounding the redemptive revelation that went beforehand in the fact that he is consubstantial deity with his Father. 
that Jesus and his father do not differ one iota in terms of the divine essence. They do not differ in authority. They do not differ in power. They do not differ uh, in terms of how much one so-called participates in the divine essence or doesn't participate in the divine essence. All right, there is no difference essentially between father and son. There is difference between father and son or distinction between father and son in virtue of the relations of origin, but not in virtue of essential distinction because the essence is one and undivided, meaning there is and cannot be any real distinction in the divine essence. Let's go quickly, um, before I pull up uh, the screen share here with uh, Logos, what I want to do is uh, just just real quickly, uh, I'll, uh, I'll pull up uh, Broken Wharf here. BrokenWharf.com is a wonderful British, uh, out of the UK, um, Ramsbottom, UK, um, kind of I think the Midlands area of the island. Um, BrokenWharf.com uh, started by uh, Oliver Alleman um, Smith there and uh, fantastic website if you're in the UK if you're if you're a if you're one of my British brothers or sisters please check out brokenwharf.com a lot of good resources a lot of books in their bookstore already and it's only going to grow over time I'm supposed to be doing a book review uh, for Oliver's most recent book um, on uh, political theology which is uh, the title of which is under God over the people um, a, a small book, but I think a very significant one and helpful one as well. Anyway, I go there for my digital copy of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith if I don't have the paper copy in front of me because their digital copy of the Second London Confession of Faith is the best. I mean, it's the best, the way it's organized. So uh, shout out to Broken Wharf. Um, you guys, Darren, Oliver, you guys have done a wonderful job with the, uh, with the uh, Second London Confession there. Um, I'm going to go to uh, Of God and the Holy Trinity. And when we go to Of God and the Holy Trinity, particularly Article 3 of Chapter 2, Of God and the Holy Trinity, in this divine and infinite being, it says, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Key terminology there. So it's not as if the persons kind of oddly and limitedly share the divine essence, like the Father has a piece, the Father has some of the essence, the Son has some of the essence, and the Holy Spirit has some of the essence. No, they just are the essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the essence. Um, to maybe uncloud the situation a little bit or the conversation a little bit, when we when we speak of the divine essence, we're just talking about God, right? Uh, so when we, when we say divine essence, a synonym to that is just God. Um, so uh, this is pretty uncontroversial when you put it in these terms, right? Because we, we, we have no problem saying that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just are God, or just are the one God, for example, the language in Deuteronomy 6.4 in the Shema, they just are that one God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Um, we have no problem saying that. For some reason, when you bring in the language of the divine essence, probably because it's it's somewhat archaic, it's less familiar than just the term God, um, 
things start to get a bit shaky and uh, and and people start to get a little bit apprehensive about that kind of language, just know that when we use the word divine essence, we're talking about nothing less than God himself, God, Yahweh, so on and so forth, right? So when we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just are the one divine essence, we're saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just are the one God, right? The one Yahweh. Okay. So now that, now that I've cleared that up, hopefully cleared that up. I don't want to be too confident here, um, but hopefully has been helpful um, in perhaps clearing up and preventing some confusion. We can jump into our text here. And what I would like to do, if I haven't done it already, so I'm going to zoom over to here. And let's see. Okay, here I am, but let me uh, kind of reshape this. Um, it's an I don't like the dimensions of that. I'll 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 have to change it at some uh, other time. But here we are. Uh, again, there has been uh, some uh, some apprehension as to whether or not we should interpret. John 10.30, so-called metaphysically. Um, and what I mean is John 10.30, it's over here on the right-hand side of your screen. Uh, and uh, a, a, a similar text that we're going to go to, uh, where similar language, and I would even argue that less clear language is used, though it is a popular text to go to for the deity of Christ, is over here on your left side, which is John 8.58. So go over here, and actually I'm just going to, can I change this? Okay, yes, I can. All right, so over here on your left side now, sorry, I changed it. Left side is the text we're at, John 10.30. Right side is the text we're going to go to here in a moment. So if you're looking at John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Um, now, what is the text saying? What is Jesus Christ saying? Um, contextually, you have a lot of different themes going on. Um and it would be uh, improper to say, well, and, and this is one take. This isn't, you know, uh, uh, everybody's understanding here. And, and I don't want to mischaracterize any one person, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drop names because I just, I, I'm not 100% sure as to what those who would prevent a metaphysical understanding of John 10:30 would actually confess. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna elaborate on what I think they believe, but. There is, there is a, an interpretive position out there on John 10.30 and texts like it that would say, well, when Jesus uh, says that he is one with his Father, what he means there, the one, uh, the one, the ice, uh, is to be understood as, um, as one in purpose. Uh, it's to be understood as one in purpose. And um, so when we're looking at, you know, John 1030, the ice, which is actually it's a it's it's adjectival. So it's 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 I think it would be something like Hain um, is is there uh, a lot of people would say that that word one, as it translates into the English, is um, is numerically representative of the single purpose shared between father and son. And some would argue based on the context that this text, John 10.30, is primarily 
and uh, and uh, immediately teaching the single purpose that Jesus has with his father. Um, so when you read back up a couple of verses, again, we're on the left-hand side here. Back up a couple of verses, Jesus is uh, interacting with the Jews that are surrounding him. It's the Feast of Dedication, we learn in verse 22. Jesus walks into the temple, so that's where they are, in Solomon's porch. Jews are all around, and they start asking him. They say, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus responds in verse 25. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, some who argue for the unity of purpose, and that's all between Father and Son from John 10.30, would back up to verses 28 and 29, and they would say, well, obviously the context is eternal life. That represents a goal, a mission of both father and son, a purpose of father and son. That is to give eternal life to the sheep. And so because the context is eternal life, as we see in verse 28 here, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, then therefore the near context has to be eternal life. And that indicates that what Jesus has in view in verse 30 is a unity of purpose, not a unity of essence, not a unity of substance. Uh, there's no metaphysical language here, only language of goal or purpose, uh, or at least that's the primary meaning of John 10.30. But if we back up even further than 28 and 29, and we look at the question that the Jews ask Jesus Christ, we realize that in verse 24, the questions that the Jews are asking him is, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, before I start in here, I'm not obviously not saying that the Father is Christ and that that's what Jesus is arguing in verse 30. But I do want to point out at verse 24 that the question here has to do with the identity of Jesus Christ. It has to do with who Jesus Christ is. Immediately in view is Christ's identity. Flowing from that is obviously what Christ would do as a result of who he is. That is, if Christ is the Messiah or if he is the Christ, eternal life would therefore be um, a, 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 a correlate, right? It would be a necessary correlate um, because the Messiah is the one who delivers. The Messiah is the one who saves, who redeems, and so on and so forth. So instead of the primary meaning of John 10.30 being the effect of God or what God gives, that is eternal life, I think the primary meaning of John 10.30 is the identity of essence that the Son has with the Father, and that grounds, right, that grounds his sovereign and infallible bestowal of eternal life, the eternal life we see in verse 28. So the substantive claim, which utilizes, by the way, a verb of being or a substantive verb, are, um, e me or es men, 
is a is a is a is a substantive statement. John ten thirty. Um, it's it's one that is meant to identify son and father not as one person but according to essence. It's a text that teaches the unity of essence between father and son. So the father is the divine essence. Father is God. The son is God. This is primarily and predominantly a claim to deity in which the former verses are grounded. So Jesus actually in verse 30 offers the sufficient explanation for what he said in verse 28 and 29. He offers the knockdown, drag out grounding of verse 28 and 29 in verse 30. I give them eternal life, he says, they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. What the Father does, I do. Right? What the Father does, I do. So not only is it teaching consubstantiality of Father and Son, it's also teaching the inseparable operations of Father and Son as well. Um, now, if you're trying to get away from that, there's like this odd, I don't know, it, it, it's, an, it's kind of this odd uh, recoil away from the doctrine of inseparable operations. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are certain people who will say, you know, you know, these are two different hands we're talking about. Well, the text isn't trying to teach us how many hands are, are involved here between father and son. Uh, what Jesus is teaching us here is that not only his purpose, but his power, his works are one with the fathers. And not only that, he goes on and says, I and my father. He doesn't say I and my father's purpose are one. He doesn't say I and my father's goals are one. He says, I and my father are one. One what? One God. That's what the text is teaching. The fact that Christ is one God with the Father is the reason why those who are now doubting him, we see that the Jews are doubting him in verse 24, are condemned. The reason they have no reason to doubt is because Christ is one with his Father. Christ is one God with the Father. Imagine if we did... Um, Imagine if we if we took John ten thirty and we and we and we went with that kind of uh, one and in purpose interpretation. We said, well, and we just flattened the whole context into the giving of eternal life. So because this is mentioned here, it must be the whole context and nothing but right. And therefore, the predominant meaning of John ten thirty is the purpose, the unified purpose of Father and Son. Imagine if we did that, and we carried. We carried that exegesis, that strategy, over to other texts in John. And that's why I have John 8, 58 pulled up here. What if we did that to John 8, 58? Nobody does that to John 8, 58, not that I'm aware of. Um, and John 8, 58 is, oddly enough, a more elusive text than John 10, 30. It's less clear. Why is it less clear? Because it's an illusion to the ego e me of the Old Testament, Exodus 3, right? The, the I am that I am. It's an allusion to those words. But in John 10, 30, we don't have a mere allusion. 
right? We have no trouble making that connection from John 8:58 to Exodus 3 and then identifying Jesus with Yahweh on that basis, understanding that that's what Jesus himself is doing in John 8:58. But that text is a lot more elusive than John 10:30. Because John 10:30 actually uses names, right? Um I and my father are one. Imagine if we did the unified in purpose, unified in goal interpretation with John 8:58. We could say, for example, we could come over to, to John 8, 54. J Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if you say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, what if we said, well, the context here is obviously... Um, it's obviously Abraham, right? It's Abraham and what Abraham rejoiced to see. And therefore, we have to be careful making the meaning of John 8.58 be primarily a metaphysical one, right? We don't say that because we understand what Jesus is doing is he's arguing from that which is more known to that which is perhaps less known to them. These are people who are experiencing the Son according to the Son's human nature. The deity of Christ is veiled to them through the flesh, right? And so he's he's arguing from things which is which which are more known to them. That is the Old Testament scriptures, and he's bringing in Abraham, which they like to claim is their father. That's their father. But here Christ asserts his primacy over Abraham. By saying, Abraham, in fact, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then you get John 8, 58. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what if Jesus was just, maybe he's not arguing there for consubstantiality. Maybe he's just arguing for primacy over Abraham. Maybe that's the, prime, maybe that's the primary meaning of John 8, 58. I mean, we could flatten the context and maybe get that out of it, and we could just say, well, well, Jesus is just arguing for his primacy over Abraham. He's not making a God claim. He's certainly not identifying himself with Yahweh. Well, we don't do that, right? We don't do that. We say, no, this is obviously Jesus is um, using a text from Exodus 3, the text from Exodus 3.14, where Yahweh announces himself to Moses. Moses asks, who, 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 who am I going to say sent me? And God replies, I am that I am, right? And so Jesus is consciously pulling from Exodus 3.14 to make the point and to identify himself with Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, all right? And we have no problem looking at John 8.58 and saying, well, you know, Jesus is making what amounts to be an ontological or a metaphysical claim there because he's making himself to be equal with God. He's making himself to be one with God, right? That's the predominant meaning. You could say, well, his primary purpose is to make himself primal over Abraham, um, but what meaning would that have or what significance would that have in the great scheme of things if Christ is not primal over Abraham in virtue of him being God, right? So, um, so the primary, immediate, and most central meaning of John eight fifty eight 
is the fact that Jesus Christ is himself Yahweh incarnate. He is God in the flesh. Okay, I think that's... Um, I think that's all I'm going to do uh, for now. I just wanted to, to look at some John 10.30 and then, and then make a quick comparison in terms of how we interpret John 8.58. Um, now, when we're thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity and how we've confessed the doctrine of the Trinity throughout the many centuries um, of the history of Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity is what? God is one, or he's numerically one, essence, subsisting in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Um, again, to, 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 uh, to read off of the uh, Second London Confession, chapter 2, article 3, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. That's the orthodox um, statement of uh, tri, triune dogma, of the dogma of the Trinity, all right? Um, when we're thinking about how that language that you just heard, language that's not itself found in Scripture explicitly, thinking of substance, undivided essence, and subsistences, right? Thinking about language like that, that's not immediately biblical. It's not, it's not something that's found in the text explicitly, Yet it articulates a concept that is biblical, a profound concept that is biblical. Um, and, and that language was employed to summarize or distill the aggregate biblical data. So that when we look at texts like John 10.30, and we see a couple of things going on there, namely that there is a, a unity of father and son, but also that, the, that there is a distinction between father and son. I and my father are one, right? I and my father. There's Jesus and his father. Those are distinct persons or subsistences. Yet, consubstantiality or unity of essence is affirmed as well. I and my Father are one. How do we talk about that? How do we explain that? How do we set that forth against heresy or against teaching that is contrary to biblical doctrine of the Holy Trinity? And that's where that language like subsistences, essence, substance, nature, person, how it's used within the context of the Trinity, that's where those terms become very, very useful to distinguish a true and biblical triune orthodoxy from that which is not a biblical triune orthodoxy, but is an aberration of orthodoxy. It is heterodoxy. We use those words to distinguish truth from falsehood. And so when you're looking at a text like John 10.30, you could just let sit I and my father are one. And then, you know, the Arian comes over and, and, and does what the Arian would do with it, which would be to say that Jesus and his father have one purpose. That's the Arian interpretation of that. Or it would be to, you know, take the modalist interpretation of it. Well, the two persons really are just one person, um, obviously throughout the scheme of redemptive history, appearing as, as manifold different individuals, 
um, kind of for only revelatory purposes, right? There is no distinction in subsistence. Uh, there's no distinction in the, in the manner of subsistence of the divine essence with modalism, um, like there is in Christian orthodoxy or triune orthodoxy. And so it's very important that as we look at texts like John 10.30, as we look at texts like John 8.58, that we realize these texts not only in light of their immediate context, but in light of the whole of Scripture. The context of every text of Scripture is the text of Scripture. And so when we're looking at, uh, at these texts, um, we need to understand that, uh, that they have a broader context than their most immediate context, although I would argue that even in the immediate context, you're, the more you think about them, contemplate upon them, and, and reflect upon them, you're forced into um, using some language or thinking about this in ways that, um, that would, would do justice to the text. And the only way to do that is to it would be to say that the, the the son and the father are distinct. You know, if you're just thinking, sitting there churning, you're sitting in a field somewhere, um, and you're and you're thinking about John ten thirty, which you read earlier that day. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? I and my father are one. I and my father are one. Well, Jesus and his father are obviously distinct because there's a, a natural distinction in the text. Um, but then there's oneness or unity affirmed as well. What do we do with that? And so you would say that they are one thing. Uh, thing is like the, the basic word we might use for being, right? They are one being, but they are distinguished. How? How are they distinguished? See, this is the, these are the questions the early church is wrestling with. How are they distinguished? How do I explain that distinction? How am I able to set forth that distinction in, in words that would do justice to the text, right? Every pastor has to think about this every week. How do I use words in my manuscript that perhaps are not directly biblical words, but yet do justice to the biblical text? And that's what the church had been doing in the earlier years with the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's why we've ended up with these tried-and-true terms uh, and with this tried-and-true hermeneutic that quite successfully and rightly and properly in accord with the text itself, um, derives these grand metaphysical realities, dare I use that term, um, which have to do with, with God the Trinity. So, hopefully that was helpful. I'm going to go ahead and cap it off there. Again, if, this, if it was helpful, give a thumbs up and, and share it. Um, and, um, and if it wasn't, uh, let me know. You can let me know in the comments section, or you can contact me through my website, thebaptistbroadcast.com. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.